Welcome back to Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys Rewatch podcast. Quick reminder, we are a rewatch pod. So what that means is if you haven't seen the entire series, you are in the wrong place because we spoil everything. Please go watch the entire thing, come back and listen with us. You are right now hearing Beep and I am joined as always by the lovely Cece. Hey guys. And we just want to thank you guys for your amazing feedback. This is a very special episode for us because it is about a very special episode of television. And there's so much to reconsider that we wanted to do a a specific mini-sode that celebrates Lullaby with listener feedback. So here's the the deal or the game or the contest that did we say that we were doing this? Yeah, we have said. Yay! Okay, well, (laughs) it should be no surprise to you to hear at the end, we will be announcing who won a prop from Blood Washed Away, as well as what the prop is, and we are so, so very grateful to Terry Metalis for providing that. So we're going to start off with a recording from, um, I'm going to call her my pod mom, just to annoy her, Joe, uh, who's the (laughs) co-host of uh, May We Geek Again, and who joined us for um, the Immortal episode. Hi, this is Joe from May We Geek Again, and I'm calling about my thoughts on Lullaby, Season 2, Episode 8, and here's my thoughts. I'm in a reboot. Like, that's it. That's the whole thought. It was the meta-ness of it. That's it. Okay, bye. Okay, I had one more thought. It finally occurred to me that the time that, that, that time needed them to save Hannah so that she could go back in time and make Cole, unless that was a mistake and that the moment was actually the start of their loop, maybe. I think I maybe just had a stroke trying to think about that. Okay, bye. Hi, Joe again. This is my last thought, I promise. Um, this is mostly for Cece. Uh, there was some top shelf, top quality casserole content, uh, in that episode, so. Also that. Okay, bye. (laughs) Oh, that was such a journey. (laughs) I love it. I love that it's like, you know what? This is the kind of episode of TV that makes you like pick up the phone and call someone three times. (laughs) Joe, (laughs) Joe messaged me that she left three voicemails. And I was like, oh my gosh, she doesn't always, you know, speak that much, at least like on her own, unless there's conversation going on. It must be like Megan. I mean, she she topped out at nine minutes. And instead, I see that they're like 15 seconds a piece. <laughs> and they're delightful. And that's my thought. And okay, bye. <laughs> like walking away from the phone wait no no wait but I thought of something else and wait no, no, no. so yeah I mean I know we like we laughed about like I'm in a reboot but like what it, it is it is so rare if you look at even the we'll get like think about this at the end when you get to the end of this podcast this is an episode of tv Like, this listener feedback is going to be a journeyman of, like, feelings and brain-breaking time travel paradox thoughts and just appreciating, like, the humor or, like, in this case, just, like, the, like, unbelievably, like, meta and, like, pop culture. Like, I just freaking love that kind of stuff. And the fact that, like... I feel like there are some shows that do that meta stuff really well, but then don't always hit the, like, 
tension and and hitting sort of the climax of building a drama well or they don't they're really good at building the climax and the twist but they're not good at like connecting the like to character development or like uh, character like emotions and audience emotions and this is an episode like the entire series that can can do like it's like hold my beer i can do all of those things yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know like Ah, oh, so yeah. And what was the time? What was the? <laughs> it was just hitting her about why why Hannah had to be saved. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just keep getting distracted by Joe again. Okay, bye. <laughs> like, I love, I love her. Like, so, so Joe and I have never shared the same ship in our lives, and I like really appreciate that, like, recognition that this is a fucking phenomenal casserole like angst slow burn like as we were saying like it is just like even people that aren't into this necessarily like romantic pairing are like you know what i see good romantic angst when i see it not some good shit <laughs> so yeah at least acknowledging like the care with which the story was handled absolutely i thank you for your shipping support joe uh, <laughs> So our first written feedback is from um, Twitter, at Sarah Ann DeRuer. Folks did this in different styles. Um, it's more kind of just a series of comments. Other people wrote paragraph form. So we're just kind of taking it all in as it came to us. So, so this is what Sarah had to say. The name Hannah. So about the name. It always will be the same name whether you read it from the beginning or the end. And when you think about Cole saving her, normally you need an adult mother and father to give birth to a child. But when you look at Hannah's timeline, she as a child first needs her adult son. So the other way around. Reverse beginning and end, like her name. First time watching it, I thought that this is all about the grandfather paradox. Of course you can't kill Jones, because if Cassie succeeded, Jones wouldn't build the time machine, but this would mean she can't send Cassie back to kill her. Similar thought about Hannah being saved and Jones knowing it. There wouldn't be a reason for her to build a time machine, and then they couldn't save Hannah. What I didn't understand was why they had to save her. After watching the whole show, it's pretty obvious. Without Cole, Jones can't find a way to send someone unharmed through time. So they have to save Hannah because, as we all know, she is the mother. God, this is confusing, but I love it. It's so mind-blowing. <laughs> it's so mind-blowing that the son has to travel through time to save his child mom without even knowing she is his mother. I knew this show was brilliant, watching it for the first time, and it made me so excited. Now I know it's even more brilliant. Other random thoughts I had during rewatch. I lost my Hannah and the mother of Cole, who's your grandson, Jones. <laughs> Everything will be erased. No, this is somehow a beginning. If this wouldn't be a loop without end or beginning, it would erase everything if Cassie wouldn't be there because then Hannah wouldn't be the mother of Cole and you couldn't finish the time machine and that would break the loop and you wouldn't stand before Cole to tell him that. Barbara's singing beautiful. Barbara's singing voice is so beautiful. Everyone always says German is so aggressive. How does the lullaby sound to non-German people? I'm assuming Sarah's German. Yeah, yeah, she is. <laughs> I think it's beautiful, too. <laughs> it's beautiful German singing. Um, the talk between Cole and Cassie the night they tried to do nothing was so giant heart emoji. He only wants her to be happy. But did he kind of implant in her the idea that the only world that matters is with the two of them together, as in Cassie in the Red Forest? 
And oh my God, after this talk, she has visions of the Red Forest and Titan. Her other like sort of just basically stream of emotions, which I get because that's like all of us watching this. <laughs> just give me a minute. Makes me think of one minute more. Cole and Cassie holding hands. You should tell her. No, you should. You are the puzzle maker. You are Hannah's son and Joan's grandson. <laughs> oh, and finally, the I'm not crying, you're crying. The moment Jones realizes Hannah is alive. Thank you, Sarah, so much for those comments. It's such a ride. I know. <laughs> I love it. It's like, I'm thinking about it. I'm making my brain hurt. And then, ah, feelings. <laughs> um, I, I mean, watching, and I know we already spoke about it on our podcast. I definitely got caught up um, on the logistics of the grandfather paradox the first time around. Mm-hmm. I think that, and even the second time. Now, knowing what was going to happen, obviously, it was, you know, it became kind of a moot point. And whether they considered it or not, you know, as far as Jones in the team, always talking about causality and paradoxes, I don't think it really ended up mattering. The one thing I wanted to point out is that I thought that a lot of saving Hannah, at least the way they did it here, and specifically the loops and all going back and making sure she was alive, was about restoring Jones's hope. And I think that's the that was a cool thing. Yeah, I mean, there's so many reasons for it, right? It's just sure, basically sure. peeling back, you know, it's peeling back... It's like peeling the layers to an onion because it's Jones's hope, but then also, right, the birth of coal, but then also needing to erase coal. So there's just so many different layers as to why, you know, and then you add to that what you were pointing out on our last podcast that like all of this already happened. <laughs> so, yeah. right, or like did it. Ah, so all yeah. they're really doing is keeping the time uh, timeline intact. Uh. <laughs> Our next uh, bit of feedback comes from at Stenzy4 on Twitter. As someone who has lost a child watching Lullaby with my wife gave us a few minutes to dream off into fantasy land and dream about the miracle of seeing our child again. I'll always love this show for helping me through our own heartache. I wanted to name our newborn son Ethan because he saves his parents like our child has saved us. Oh, oh man. I hadn't read this yet. Yeah. Wow. Um, I just, that is really brave. Um, to share that. And um, I just can't even imagine. And I'm so uh, words don't really seem sufficient. But yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why art can be so powerful, right? It can be healing. Yeah. And, you know, this is not the first person who has talked sort of online about how this show has helped them deal with grief and loss in their life. And yeah, I mean, uh, I, I feel like maybe we should just let that kind of stand on its own because it's a really hard and and kind of beautiful thing to share. Thank yeah. you for doing that, Stenzi. Yeah, and I know that that will mean so much to, to Terry and Sean and the creators. That's incredible. Hi, everyone. This is Megan. I hope my voice sounds extra sexy because of all the pollen in the air. Um, so I just finished watching Lullaby. And I wanted to call when my feels were very fresh, even if my thoughts are not super eloquent. Um, so I haven't rewatched it as a while, and I've never rewatched it as just a standalone episode. And my first comment is how well it works as a standalone. Like, um, it's, it's like, especially if you've already been introduced to the universe, it really works as almost like a novella, you know? Um, there's a sense of it being kind of structurally set apart and, um, 
And when it comes to, like, structure and writing, one thing I think this episode really demonstrates, and this whole series demonstrates, but this episode is a good encapsulation of it, is that these writers know how to withhold. And that must be really, really hard when you have as many good twists to the story as they do to, like, pace those twists out. And in Lullaby, that happens because we don't see the cycles where um, Cole and Cassie figure out how to um, work the plan to figure out how to, um, you know, make Jones believe that Hannah's dead while saving Hannah. Um, but they just come back, and you're like, wait, what? And then they have the reveal of, you know, Jones seeing Hannah and the – what I mean, it's just paced so well because it keeps – the tension so high that even as the catharsis happens, when you realize that it's Hannah, like it, it just keeps it ongoing and it builds that tension into when Cassie and Ramsey talk at the end because they, they can't let you fully release because then you would be kind of flat as an audience per- member um, at the final themes. Right. So I just think that structurally, emotionally beats wise, this episode is, fantastic. My other thing that um, I think when it comes to structure or themes and just storytelling mechanics that the show does so well and is it lets people and it lets the people have or the characters have triumphs. And the first word that came to mind was victory. And I was like, no, it's not victory. Like, but they do because that is like some sort of the connotation of victory to me is like an unassailable win, right? Or like um, it's a win where everything was like worth it, where there's no question that it was worth it. You know what I mean? Like it just has a different kind of meaning to me, but the triumph. Okay. I got cut off. So it's kind of rude, but whatever. <laughs> so triumph to me though, is kind of better because like in 12 monkeys and even in this episode, like the idea of like, um, of something working out is never just like, it worked out and we didn't lose anything. We didn't sacrifice anything. And it was, you know what I mean? Like, but they give you that, that catharsis. They give you the win. Like they give you the, the overcoming. And it's so sweet because, you know, there's so much pain and the show is about, you know, it, it is about like trauma and loss and grief and, um, kind of the ways in which we self-deceive ourselves about like what could be better, like grass is greener, um, it, you know, and, but at the same time, like, it's also a show about how people love each other and they choose each other and, um, and they let you really feel that they don't just say it. They don't just say that that's the value of the show or the characters have that as a value. Like they demonstrate it. And this was a really big way because like Cassie and Cole sacrificed and risked a lot to have to save Hannah and that's like that's love that's commitment that's integrity that's honor right and um it's just something really special to see in characters especially in a post-apocalyptic show okay I'm probably gonna get cut off again but one more thing I wanted to talk about was um with a Jones like ending kind of soliloquy when she's like maybe death isn't necessary for the pat or uh, what did she say? Something about, is death necessary for the past to be erased? And I think that's really interesting because the next scene is um, Cole talking about it's not perfect, but it's something. 
And then Cassie saying, yes, but it's the losing that haunts us. And I think that, like, okay, so everyone know who, anyway, you guys know that I'm, like, in counseling uh, grad school, like, counseling grad school, uh, in a master's program for counseling. And so, um, but, you know, this past year, doing a lot of reading and submersing myself in, like, attachment theory stuff, trauma stuff, all this, like, kind of work. And so this, this, these sentences or these scenes really hit me as authentic and really beautiful and, like, really, like, poignant and real questions that people have, right? Like, the the ability to say that it's not perfect, but it's something is so resilient. You can also empathize with Cassie saying, like, yeah, but it's the losing that haunts us. Like, even if we got this perfect moment, it's the losing that haunts us. And there's something that's really true in that statement. Like, I mean, even in our neurobiology, like the 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 negative, the attachment rupture. I know I'm getting real geeky with this. It is what haunts people. Uh, this, you know, like those those emotions are what stay with us. Um, and so she's not wrong either. And then like just on an emotional level, on a like story level, it's just beautiful. Um, it speaks to like the nature of grief, I think, and of surviving. And I also think that to put a cap on it, you know, um, Cassie saying it's the losing that haunts us is such a like a minor key note to the entire episode where something that was lost was found and something that was lost in a way that we never thought we could retrieve it was found and discovered and a bond that was supposedly severed was restored. And I think that, I mean, it's, it's a really beautiful message of, of hope, right? Like, and it's not like this airy fairy kind of like, you know, hope in cursive letters that you, see in like a cheesy shot like a cheesy picture frame or something it's like no hope is people loving each other and working together and sacrificing and um you know doing the hard thing and figure you know what i mean like all that resilience just so much resilience and in the end it it restores something that was lost and i just think that that's a really really beautiful message um to put out there and then you know lullabies right now are my kind of my jam and stories from the magicians and in this show the use of a lullaby conveys so much um so much tenderness so much childhood hope right so much um like it's the hope for parents that their children will have a sweet dream and they sing them a lullaby that communicates love and peace and so to have it start the episode and then to have it kind of like end that arc on the lullabies as they're hugging, as Jones and Hannah are hugging. And then Cole is there and like Cole is <laughs> family. Oh, God. It's just so layered. I, I barely even touched on it. But, yeah. So I love this episode. Um, thanks for listening. Bye. Oh, Megan always brings the feels, man. <laughs> now she's going to back it up with, like, science and stuff. I don't need that. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I it, but I mean, I think it ties back to what Stenzi wrote, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there is something that is so authentic um, about the way this show approaches grappling with loss and finding hope that I think is why it 
strikes such a deep chord um, in people who watch it. Um, but I love Megan's point about how good a standalone episode it is and how, like, this episode should have been, right? Like, there's all these twists in the episode. And now when you're watching it, it's like, but dude, they knew that Hannah was Cole's mom when they made this episode. Like, yeah. how did they even contain that shit for like two <laughs> more seasons, right? I mean, Lullaby is kind of like, looking back at it, it like was like a shot across the bow to us viewers of like, dude, we're coming for you. And you have no idea <laughs> like what's coming, right? And it's just sort of like this episode alone, you're now like like the structure of it and how they don't show you what they ultimately do to get out of the loop until the end. Right. And like how they build all of that. And then they still don't even let you have a, like a total release because of the tension that's restored by like Ramsey being there at the end. Right. Like all of those like structural writing choices that Megan pointed out, but you just like how they parsed out all of these twists that are not bullshit twists. Right. They're ones that they like, are, are like the, the backbone of the story all the way to the end. It's just like, I don't know how you would have like contained yourself. It's like having the best gift to give to someone and then having to wait <laughs> like, <laughs> like years <laughs> to give it. Especially listening to people's theories about who his mom is, you know, like how many times <laughs> must the writers have just like rolled their eyes. I remember after season three, a lot of people thinking that Jennifer, Jennifer yeah, mm -hmm. was Cole's mother. And I was like, I don't see that at all from the story. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. yes, she told the the story of the demon first in the uh, voiceover, but I I never thought that for a moment. So that was interesting to me. But, yeah. you know, I mean, people are, are swayed and convinced by different things until answers pop up. Um, I loved what she was talking about, uh, about the win. Uh -huh. And whether or not it was definitive, because I felt like, you know, this, it was a win. It was a win in many ways, but it was more like a win of uh, the battle and not the war. Mm -hmm. And if anything, it made, you know, the journey or the war more complicated and, and you know, a bigger, meatier thing to go on for that much longer. Um, and so I feel like all the all the victory did in that sense was actually assist in preparing them for a much much longer and more complicated um journey that they were about to have to embark on right i mean i also like what megan pointed out that it's a win but it comes at a cost mm -hmm. and it's a new cost right so like what jones right what jones is living with for most of her life was thinking that her daughter died and now you know, when she, when Megan, I loved how she put how a lullaby is a parent's like most simple wish. Mm -hmm. um, and how we talked about how the words of Brahms lullaby, right, uh, go towards sort of the central, like, hoping that your child will wake up again, right? And so Jones's greatest wish was that Hannah didn't die. But now it's a new loss, right? Like, it, it is a re restoration of hope, but it is tinged with a new loss. And that yeah. is... My daughter was on this planet, not far from here, for 24 years. And I lost all of that time. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, we're going to get into like in the next episode, not only that, but I mean, if you want to layer on top of the fact that you are meeting your child and they are an adult and they had no idea of your existence, right? And all of the sort of real world um 
like difficulties that are sort of enmeshed in that with identity and 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 like resentment and and everything else but like on top of that Hannah was raised in a world that is like was diametrically opposed to science right and like heard mm-hmm. these stories of Hannah of of Jones as like Dr. Grimm and so it's sort of like Jones's greatest wish came true but in a way that is not without its own kind of loss and in a way that she never would have expected. And that is like, so such a perfect, like that's life. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So thank you. It also parallels to stories, you know, where you have someone who grants wishes, be it a genie or or whatever sort Mm -hmm. of um, fantasy sci-fi thing where you wish for something and they always grant it in like the weirdest, most twisted way. (laughs) If you're not like, you know, fully specific about exactly what you want, then it's like they're they're using it to um, kind of trick you or or hurt you at the same time as they give you what you're asking for. Right. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much, Megan. Verdant Dreaming. I didn't think I was going to submit for the mini pod because I struggled with how my words could do that episode any sort of justice. This isn't the episode that made me fall in love with the show. I was already there. But it is an episode that showed exactly what the stakes were going to be in this show and how they would address them. It's painful and beautiful, but it never misses a chance to let you breathe or have a giggle. It's a storytelling masterpiece that centers the entire plot of the episode and the series on the connections between these people. In an age when TV has become a giant pissing match of look how clever I am, Lullaby stands out. Not because it isn't clever, oh my god, it's the paramount of clever, but because it weaves clever and twisty plots into this beautiful structure that the characters and the relationships are housed in. And a house without a family is just a building, and a clever plot without carefully crafted characters and relationships is just a shell. I love Lullaby not because it made me fall in love with 12 Monkeys, but because it helped raise my expectations for everything else. Also, Cassie getting to be an amazing doctor, the amazing doctor that she is, refusing to listen to a bunch of asshats is always an amazing sight to behold. (laughs) (laughs) It's like almost not fair for people to end like amazing commentary with like some... Something like that because then I'm totally distracted. Like, yep, that's true. I don't remember what you said before, but we. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, we touched on this a little bit when we were talking with Jen, but I think Verdant Dreaming gets at something that is the reason why, right? Like, uh, like as much as we liked other shows that had crazy plots and maybe they tied it up or maybe they did it like at the end of the day if it's just a twist and a clever ending you're like oh that was a clever ending but then it doesn't like emotionally resonate you don't i don't at least me personally i don't keep thinking about it right yeah, it doesn't stick with you and you don't carry it with you right because it's about characters and relationships and and that's why this episode even the first time watching, even though the twist was, of course, like amazingly cool, it it's it was because it was grounded in what it meant to Jones. And now, as this, as they continued to build a story that was about character relationships and revealing character relationships that we didn't even know existed, that's what now imbues it with like even greater depth and meaning. Mm-hmm. It's why we're still, you know, talking about each episode for like three hours. Okay, and I'm going to get her, uh, we'll have to get her to look back and we can share, I know some of the Tumblr stuff that Verdant Dreaming has done, she did on on Cassie being a doctor and 
things like that and wrote some really, really cool stuff. So not only do I want people to see that, but I also want to use it to uh, force, encourage her to continue writing. Yes, because she's a really great writer. She is. But yeah, like I, that whole look how clever I am is definitely, I do feel like that's a thing, right? Like, you know, over it. Right. I mean, that's not to say that I don't love, I don't love smart writing, but like, here's the thing. If you're writing a, like, if you're writing a really carefully crafted story, sometimes that's going to, that twist is going to work. Other times, if the clues are all there, like, we're going to be able to figure it out. And I don't necessarily, like, for example, with the first season of Westworld, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I just think it means, you wrote a good story, right? That had clues building along the way. But you know what? I don't really think about, I don't really think about, for example, first season of Westworld, or I don't really think about Lost that much really anymore, even though I was like obsessed with it at the time, right? It just didn't have the same staying power. Um, No, not not for my, me either. And it just, I mean, I know that depends because I know some people, you know, still love loss and it's their favorite show and they'll they will never get over that and that's great it is nice and in theory for people to be able to take things from you know from different shows or different pieces and have it resonate with them differently but i'm the same way it's it's just what used to be some good tv now and i think it paved the way for some better tv in the future but i don't Mm -hmm. think that it's a you know it's not a staple in my rotation yeah so i mean i think that's why you still have some some days there are more tweets of people talking about 12 monkeys than there are about people tweeting about shows that are currently airing it's because it just is like a show you carry in your heart and that's just because it had a lot of heart to begin with um all right you want to get into the next one okay so our next feedback is from evie it's at how would you say that alliferously sure alifers alliferously yeah, that's what I was thinking. Okay. Our next feedback is from Evie. That's at Alliferously on Twitter. One, old Jennifer knows exactly which card to play when. She knows that Hannah should live so Cole and by default time can play out as it should. I was thinking it was to Jones's detriment considering that Hannah was in the facility and camped within shouting distance the whole time. But now I see why she did so. Two, you're in a reboot. Well, yes, Jennifer, you are. Best line of the episode. Three, Cassie. I think this is a point where she turns around about time travel and that it doesn't always have to involve dying. Also, as a doctor, it must be heart-rending that she's never been able to use her knowledge to save people. Not Eklund, not Sam, or any of the deaths in previous episodes. So I think it was a good thing that she could save Hannah. Hmm. Four, Casserole. And I'm going in the negative here because the next three episodes or so up to the finale are not my favorite episodes. I think they've been trying to mend things. Cassie knows that he loves her, so it never made much sense to me that it was a big reveal during their final argument. I'm not big on the Cassie Ramsey treacherous bullshit on the whole, so I don't know how they went from almost kissed to being so soured on each other, I think, in 2.11. I think the above had a lot to do with it, but it's a huge 360 emotion-wise. Five, overall, I find it such a pivotal episode in the series. I never really saw that on previous watches, but I do now. Okay. So I know lot. that <laughs> I know that Tina's going to have some serious casserole thoughts. Well, well, first, I mean, this is fun because this is. Am I thinking about this the right way? That this is like for 2020, Jennifer. 
it's like the first time she's having to like figure out how to coach Cole through stuff she already knows. Yeah, yeah. You know? So at least in a in a big way. There may have been a, a, a mention here or there before, but yeah, in a big way, for sure. Right. And so there's kind of like this nervous energy of like Okay, here we go. <laughs> right? Like, you know, if you think about her at the end saying it's the actor playing the role and thinking about her having to go back and do all of these things, no matter what version of that, you know, loop it is. Um, I love that it's like this kind of melding between the old Jennifer who's calm and knows things and 2016 Jennifer that is like more... I don't mean manic, like in the clinical sense, but just in terms of like her energy. Oh, yeah. So it's kind of like her first time that she's like, okay, I'm the coach. I know stuff. How do I do this? Right. And you can almost see it like when she's like, you got to do right. Like the way she delivers the line. It's like it's it's great because it's almost like, you know, we have talked about in past episodes about how Cole sometimes has to talk to Jennifer like he's the parent and she's the child. But this one, it's like when you're when I felt like it's like when I'm trying to help my kiddo with like their math homework and you don't want to give them the answer, <laughs> but you're trying to like be like, OK, you got to figure this out on your own. But like if two plus two is this, then what's one more? Right. Like the way that she's delivering it. So it's so fun because it's like the snapshot of, you know, it's not just sort of that transitional Jennifer, but it's that transition in their mentoring, she's leading, he's following relationship for that right. Jennifer at that time. Because she has to figure out not only like what clues, but how, like which ones are going to land with him. She has to be able to say it in such a way, you know, that like he can figure it out. So just like you said with the math thing, like you can say two plus two equals maybe that works for one kid and maybe for somebody else you have to say something else. So she's like trying to learn to like parent a grown person <laughs> by coaching them on something that she doesn't necessarily know how to accomplish, but knows has to be done. Right, right. Yeah. Um, And I love, I love that observation about Cassie. Like, uh, you know, it it is sort of the Cassie that we met in the pilot heals Cole through season one. She's constantly like she's I'm a healer, right? This isn't me. And it is. And that's ultimately the Cassie that she will be like in the new timeline. She will go back to being a doctor. And as she said, like saving one person at a time. So it is wonderful to for her. You know, I don't think it ultimately you know, obviously, it doesn't allow her to kind of open up her emotional floodgates, and she still will be focused on what the witness did to her and did to other people and, and seeking vengeance for that. But, you know, with sort of her her confrontation, you know, her decision with Cole at the end and her confrontation with Ramsey, but it is a really wonderful moment for Cassie the healer to have been the one that made such a difference, like the difference, right? right like in the right. whole timeline um, is, is being a doctor and, and healing this child. And it made like all of the difference to all of it. Like it's unbelievably, you know, Cole's the puzzle maker. Absolutely. Like he comes up with the idea, but it's, it's ultimately Cassie whose skills and sort of like tenacity and trying it again and again and again. And we see in that like awesome slow-mo like montage with the music swelling. It's Cassie who's the one that saves her. Um, well, yeah. And it's Cassie who determines that she's not dying of the plague to start with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think part of this is, uh, of course, like Jennifer is always directly coaching Cole. But so there's a there's a piece of this journey that's for everybody. And part of it for Cassie, I think, 
is, this is about restoring her hope to some degree too, the same way that it is Jones, because Cassie has not been able to use her skills to, to make a difference recently. And she certainly, you know, feels like they're treading water in general. She was ready to just end it all. You know, she's mm-hmm. literally by just like shooting Jones and being like, oh my God, I, I cannot do this anymore. So this gives her an entirely different perspective as well. Yeah. I mean, although it is ultimately then fueled into sort of like a mission of vengeance. (laughs) (laughs) but At least there's a mission. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, I think, you know, the one thing that we didn't, um, it just reminds me that we didn't talk about on our pod with Jen is sort of the, the, uh, I don't know if irony is the right word, but like the fact that Jones thought the whole time that the plague was what killed Hannah. Mm, yeah, but it was which was caused by human beings, right? Right. But but I don't think. But the fact that it was actually Foster's order to not treat the sick, right? right. It's like this human choice, this calculation of like we sacrifice the few for the many, and that that kind of choice is what resulted in Hannah's death. And and Jones didn't know that, right? Like, there's so many things to unpack about that, like sacrificing the one for the many. And what Cassie does by saving the one is what ultimately is going to save the many, right? Like, it's an inversion of that. Um, but there's also all these layers to peel back, right? Like, Jones thinks her daughter died because of the plague, but really she died because of Foster's order. And yet... She thinks that Hannah's dead and she's not. Like there's so many layers of like what Jones thinks and and what motivates her that isn't actually the case. Um, It's just, again, like layer upon layer to like peel back. Um, Well, let me ask you first, what do you think about, you know, we're about to jump in now. Our next pod will be hyena. We're about to jump in, jump into sort of team revenge versus team save primary and sort of this, like we start with this conflict conflict with Cassie and Cole and it kind of they chip away at it and kind of work through some stuff and you've got kind of this little apex in the middle of the season and then it's going to take a huge dive right of betrayals and handcuffing and right like <laughs> not we're not headed for a good casserole stretch um until we get to the end so how like let me ask you first how, what you think about it um I mean, I totally respect that, you know, anything that's not somebody's favorite stretch of episodes is fine. It's Mm -hmm. not your favorite for whatever reason. All good. I don't have any problem buying what's going on right now, though. Mm -hmm. I think that they're very back and forth. And I think that that is realistic. Because even though the comment was made, you know, Cassie knows that Cole loves her. There's a huge difference between what you know logically and what you can accept emotionally. And so even though if you really sat her down and asked her, do you know that Cole loves you? Like, maybe she could say yes, maybe not. But she's still in such a place where she's not going to acknowledge that. And even though they kind of got to it at the end of this episode, immediately, you know, she's presented uh, by Ramsey with this opportunity to get back at all the things that have made this mission a personal hell for her. And also, if you think about it coming right off that conversation, that it also costs her a relationship that she actually probably wanted. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? In and of this moment, she thinks, I just had to like put a stop to that. And why? It's because of this person, you know, this witness who is like screwing up everything. Um, I don't have a problem with it. I really don't. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
I think that there's still the issue and and they hit on it, you know, in 209 that Cassie's biggest deal, even if she thinks Cole, you know, cares for her, is that he's going to choose Ramsey over her every time because he did it once sort of thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you set a precedent. And so you might care about me, but I'm not like number one to you. Um, when you were to me, you know, I spent all this time in the future just trying to get back to you and fix things. And here you are kind of, you know, running your own game. And I know that happened several episodes, but I still think that this this whole season is just kind of like fallout from that. And so, yeah, sometimes it gets better and sometimes it gets worse. I mean, there's a difference between, you know, forgiving someone and even having to work with them again versus like a full reconciliation, which they have not reached. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason why um, it works, it works real like we're headed into man, like fatherland resurrection, blood washed away. And, um, Oh my God. Memory, Memory of tomorrow. tomorrow. Ah, <laughs> like how am I forgetting the freaking mantra <laughs> that was repeated? Um, Cause you're still stuck in today. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, that it is some of my stretch of favorite episodes. So it's like so interesting, right? Like what works for some people and what works for, for, you know, and like, that's why we want to make sure to include it because, like, obviously, it's totally okay if it didn't. What what worked for me is, I think, re- really the reasons are twofold. First, their conflict isn't about how they feel about one another. Right. Right? Like, this is not, as we have talked at length, the typical bullshit TV, I'm going to throw obstacles in this romantic pairing because, oh, maybe like somebody has feelings for somebody else, right? Like they actually kind of like make me make us think that that's what they're doing, but they're not doing that because they're way better writers than that. Um, the conflict is number one about their view of like the world and what needs to be done. And you can unpack that in so many different ways, right? Whether Cole is willing to, Cole thinks you live in the now, you jump off the cliff, emotional consequences be damned, right? Like all we have is now, whereas Cassie's like, you know, it's the losing that haunts us. I'm not, why would we do that to ourselves? It will end in nothing but heartache. So why would we make it worse if we can just kind of like stave that off and maintain the status quo and not like, you know, think about how heartbroken they will both be at the end of this season, right? Cole's going to be like a mess. And that's putting aside all of the other eventual ways that we talked about that they're epically fucked, right? Like, (laughs) so, um, but also their view on that goes all the way back to the beginning of the season, whether the way to prevail is is trying to save people, and that has been in so many different permutations, right? Jennifer at the beginning of the season, Ramsey at the end of last season, or, you know, it's going to be the, with the conflict regarding the primary 1957 at the end of the season. And Cassie is not, like, Cassie has been through a different journey than Cole. In some ways, like the reverse journey. Right. And so her outlook, their their outlooks based on experience are so different. So it's like, what should, what emotional risk are you able to take? What, it's ultimately good. The next couple of episodes are going to be about uh, those values, those outlooks coming into conflict because of the circumstances. And I think sort of the other sort of consistent through line is they've got like, they literally have to save the world. Yeah. <laughs> right. And yeah. so that that conflict is under the pressure cooker of trying to save, like, not even the world, right? It's saving the fucking universe at this point. And yeah. so, and so the only times that they can take a break 
and even get close to talking about those feelings that I don't think are ever actually really in question are when they're stuck in a loop on a gr- in a Groundhog Day or when they are stranded in 1958 and there's nothing they can do about the mission because the paradox has broken their tethers and they're stuck. And that's the only time that they can actually, when cat, it's not like it's a surprise reveal for us, right? That they are in love with each other. It's that they will, Cassie will actually allow them to go there. And it's because they're stranded and there's nothing to be done. So they finally give in. It's like you're suspended from work. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what are you going to (laughs) do? I mean, I guess I'll admit I love this person and like, you know, yeah. So, right. So that's, that's why it worked personally for me, because I thought that the conflict and, and ultimately the dam breaking was all grounded in their character journeys and the, and the circumstances they're in, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. I agree. All right. So our next listener feedback is from Andy, who is at ItGuy1138 on Twitter. Ah, lullaby. First time watching that, and Cassie killed Jonesy in the first five minutes, and I thought, <laughs> well, things are still dark. I think at first, Cassie kept trying to do the same thing actually annoyed me slightly because her character is much smarter than that. However, I'm not sure anymore because this is by far one of my favorite episodes for so many reasons. And the ending, oh, that ending, when they go to the daughter's camp and start telling Jones what they did. If they ever come out with a season two soundtrack, the music they had playing in the background is that is on there I will buy for that one track alone. Speaking of, Proudest to Be Your Mother still makes me a little misty-eyed when it plays. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I hope someday, I know that it's a different composer um, for, for, for season two than um, Stephen Barton for season three and four, but the music on this television show is some of my, like, favorite, um, like, one of my favorite scores of, like, anything, like, TV or film. And it, whether it's like the Jones theme or like there's, there's so many different themes and I feel like the music just keeps getting better and better and better until season four, where it's just like, it's one of my favorite soundtracks. Um, I, I think that the, the music in that reveal scene adds so much to it, right? It, you feel like you're just watching something and you're like, everyone is just, whether it's like the acting or the writing or the music, right? It's just firing like on all cylinders. Um, Just sort of like a quick, I know that the season two soundtrack wasn't released, but there are, Terry Metalis did put a bunch of unreleased tracks on the Addicts of the Twelve Monkeys Facebook site. Um, So it's a closed site, but I think you can... um, ask permission to join the group and then you can listen to a lot of those tracks um including if you'd like the sound for um titan splintering away to be like the ringtone on your phone you can (laughs) (laughs) go on there and make that happen um i should like put that on my phone for like when i need to get my kids out the door to school like (laughs) (laughs) put that sound on there um yeah did you have any thoughts about the music beep um it just it hurts <laughs> music makes things hurt more god if I that know. makes sense yeah i mean it just it heightens you know any emotion really if you ever watch a like a horror film with the sound off it's it's not scary right i mean don't get me wrong it can be gross but you know you're not it, you just don't get the same sort of impact without that added element of sound so it's just really cool how they use that in the show right and how it um how hearing something can like later on if you hear it trigger the emotions of what you watched 
right? Like it's just, I what sometimes I wonder like when people are scoring a film, are they watching a scene like like in the studio and they're like, okay, this is where we really need to like fucking hit the cello hard to make them cry. Like, do they know what <laughs> instruments <laughs> have more emotional impact than others? I actually like wonder about that. But yeah, the music is so beautiful on this show, but particularly at the end of Lullaby. I think it depends on, you know, who's doing the scoring or uh, the music director or that sort of thing. Hi, Beep and CC. Uh, this is Alicia and congrats for getting me to cry at an airport. I just rewatched Lullaby a couple days ago and it was so much. I was sitting at an airport in a public place, got myself a cookie and a latte and I cried and people were watching and it was fine. Um, I had a lot of feelings about it. Um, I wanted to talk about two things. Uh, first, the biggest thing I think that stood out to me in this rewatch watch was Jennifer. So not only did she have all these amazing like show Easter egg, um, like she says, time likes time travel. I'm in a reboot. I loved all that stuff. But um, the main thing that got to me in this rewatch is that um, she says something very specific about making the puzzles fit. And uh, I think this is the episode that really connects Jennifer as Cole and uh, Hannah and everybody's family because she essentially raises Hannah. And we don't even know up to this point uh, how Hannah is connected to Cole. But the fact that Jennifer has a major role in giving Hannah her outlook on life, the tools to protect her family, um, basically telling Cole to bring his family together, make all the puzzles fit, and that she's a part of that, that is that is really wonderful. You both know that I adore Jennifer and Cole's friendship, and um, this kind of makes it all come together as Jennifer also being part of their family, which I really love. My second feels moment is during, of course, the casserole chats. Um, hand close-ups are my favorite romantic trope, and <laughs> that emotional journey that we go on with them, holding hands at the firing squad and then coming apart at the end because Cassie wants to protect them and their feelings and they clearly love each other so much but they they don't want to it's just that that kind of shorthand that works so well in TV it it really works perfectly in this but I also really love the fireplace chat because of Cole's story that he tells um Cassie where he's talking about him and Ramsey. So he first tells the optimist story, which is that Cole and Ramsey weren't supposed to die that day. And then he tells the realist story, which is that the bullets were blank. And that's why they didn't die that day. Um, that has like no obvious solution or reason. And um, this is really might seem random, and it kind of reminded me of the end of Life of Pi, which is one of my favorite stories. I, I loved the book. I read it when I was in high school, and it was just, it really stayed with me for a long time. And basically, at the end of Life of Pi, um, Pi tells this whole animal-based story throughout the book. But at the end, he tells a much more brutal, realistic human story that's also entirely possible, but it's extremely sad and dark. And he asks the investigators who are talking to him which story they'd rather be true. And the investigators ultimately choose the more wonderful, not wonderful, the more wondrous, the more hopeful animal story, um, as opposed to the dark, um, murdery human story. And it made me happy that in, I just remember that in the book, Pi basically gives them the mercy of that choice. Um, I mean, he knows what really happened, but he lets the investigators choose and they choose to believe in the better story, even if the signs or even if reality 
might point to the darkness. And so ultimately in that story as well, for them, the real ending is the one they choose and they choose the better one. They choose the better story. So anyway, that was just some a strange place that my mind went to. Um, and it just kind of increased my like emotional attachment to this because I'd never really thought about what Cole was talking about at the fireplace. Um, and I really loved it the more I thought about it. Oh, no, I feel so badly that we made her cry. Well, not uh, it's not actually our fault, but crying at, the, at an airport. Oh, man. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> at least she had a cookie. Um. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get a cookie when I was crying. <laughs> um... So, uh, there's so much good stuff to unpack there. Um, I love, and I guess, you know, like, I know that this should be really obvious, but until I was listening to that, I don't think I had ever really stopped to appreciate the role that Jennifer, that, that Jennifer raised Cole's mother, right? Like, yeah, and it's not really, like, blatantly addressed until the finale, yeah. I mean, it's always there, right? But, sure, sure. But, but Joan's thought- like, you know, blatantly thanks her and, you know, you're such a part of what, um, you know, my Hannah will become and thank you and all that. But it's it's um, kind of saved for the yeah. most part till right there at the end. Right. I mean, you've always had, well, and it's partly it's because we didn't have, like, as Jennifer put it, like 2020 vision, right? So it was always framed as Jennifer, right? Like in the next episode, right? Like Hannah calls Jennifer mother, old Jennifer mother, right? Mm -hmm. So it was always um, more like adopted mother versus birth mother, right? Hannah, not Hannah versus Jones, but but that kind of Sometimes tension, but sort of reconciling that they both had those roles in her life um, and at different points. Um, And that, you know, the gift that Jennifer gave Jones by raising her daughter, but you Mm -hmm. don't know until one minute more, right? And then we only have the finale to, like, take in that old Jennifer is basically, like, just add to the layers of this beautiful Jones and Cole, I mean, Jennifer and Cole friendship that old Jennifer was, like, the adopted, like, is, like, his adopted grandmother. Yeah, right? and she's, like, the glue of the entire family without them even being aware of that. Right. I mean, which just, like, right, when this episode, <laughs> when when Jones calls her causality's fool, it's like, you have no fucking uh. idea, right? Like, so, yeah, I love – that's just really um, – it's just really – it's really beautiful, especially when you, again, just think of sort of the circle between Cole and Jennifer and the choices Cole makes to put Jennifer on that path and then how she makes choices that put him on the path, right? And it's just like, ah. Yeah. Oh. And Ouroboros of awesome. It's also cool to think about because we know that Alicia's favorite episode is One Minute More. Mm-hmm. So looking, you know, at all the tie-ins and the tie-backs, it's just there's so much going on here. Right. And it's so much, I mean, what I think is also interesting that we will begin to touch on in Hyena is you have so you know, this is ultimately a story about both found family and real family. And what I think is so interesting is that you think that the show is, for the most part, a journey about found family, right? right and right. like team time. But but so many of these characters who chose their found family then find out that that's their real family. 
right? So there's yeah. almost this like chicken and egg, right? I mean, you've got like con, you've got people that you chose to be in your life, conflict over people that you didn't, but now they are, right? And, and all of it is just a circle also because of eventually even the people that had that tension that you'll ultimately get over it and choose it, then you find out that they were the, your real family, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. Ah, so love that. Um, we're back to the hands, man. See, I'm not the only hand lover. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so... I, but I love I love Alicia's point that the hands the hand close-ups in and of themselves tell the story of sort of Casserole's emotional arc in this episode, yeah. right? Like Cassie reaching out, Cole reciprocating, Cole reaching out, Cassie re- reciprocating, then withdrawing her hand, right? It's just yeah. it was really ele- an elegant shorthand that is obviously charged, right? It obviously is like something that a lot of viewers felt watching as simple as simple as it is um but how they those shots kind of tell the story in and of themselves um i love the way she put um from the life of pi the mercy of that choice Mm. ah um and i think you know it's so interesting because again like what cole is talking about it's not only sort of how the how the characters find hope, believe that they have a purpose or not, right? Um, in this episode and throughout the series, but it also goes so much to the way that they left the ending to be a choice for the audience and sort of the the power that that gives the audience, right? Um, in, in sort of like, what do you want this story to be about to you? Um, and, and how that's kind of like an inkblot test for what people see or don't see in terms of whether the ending, I mean, I know that you can, some people choose to view the red forest as sort of like, actually it can be a hopeful afterlife, but other people view it as more cynical, like, nope, Cassie ultimately was selfish and chose that over everyone rather than the good guys made the sacrifice and were rewarded in the end. Right. And so I think it's just a really interesting way to think about how, the power that we like as human beings find in those stories and in believing in things when we don't necessarily, like we're not necessarily sure of them. And and I'm not talking about just obviously like the ending of this series. Um, But yeah, it's really, really interesting. Sort of like those kind of choices people make about needing something to believe in or not. I don't think I could ever fall on the side of like not needing something to believe in Mm -hmm. because then like, what's the point? You know, like, why start any of this? Mm-hmm. Why try to fix the plague? Why try to do anything? I don't know. I'm a very uh, faith-oriented person, though, so that obviously colors my view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of layers of there to unpack un- to unpack and sort of you know, it's not only like those larger questions of faith right versus reason. I can only believe in what I can prove and see versus other people saying like, well, no, like I, I don't necessarily need proof to believe, but it's also like, what do you choose to believe about people? Right. Mm -hmm. Like, do you believe like, you know, a lot of times, I mean, I think, I feel like, for example, like lately what I've been like struggling with, with some television shows is like, and we've talked a little bit about this, but like, what is sort of like the worldview of, of like sort of the creative force behind a television and like how they view human nature? You know, like, is it hopeful or is it ultimately kind of nihilistic and cynical? Um, 
But yeah. So I think it's so interesting, right? Like the choice is left up in that story that Cole tells as to, to whether what someone's going to conclude. It isn't the end of this episode. It is ultimately at the end of this series. Um, and I think it's interesting, right? Like Alicia still thinks about Life of Pi. We still talk about the ending of this show. And perhaps it's just because there really is power in a writer giving that choice to the audience. It's really interesting. In a way, like without being a cop out, because it's not. Right. It it paves the way, I think, for more people to be pleased or and to have a read on the show that that resonates with them. Right. It's like in, in this empowering way that you let the audience claim what that story is going to mean to them. The next feedback is from uh, Carol Stollard, and she says, it's a hard task you ask of us. The more I think about it, the more I wonder how we can choose a favorite moment from Lullaby when the whole episode is chock full of moments that resonate with us. So many have become indelible in our monkey brains. I think one moment, I'm sorry, I think of one moment and then I'm recalling another that is surely more memorable than the one I just envisioned. It's the little quiet ones that invade my thoughts right now. So here's kind of a list of moments. Joan's stage presence posture as she recites the Hamlet soliloquy. Deacon rushing to alert Cole of Cassie's disappearance. Cole giving Morris Morrison as the name to the spearhead guards. Cole looking away as he shoots Jones. Cassie discovering that Hannah has a bacterial infection and can be saved. Jennifer always excited Mm. to see Cassie and Cole. Cole telling Cassie that the only world he gives a damn about is the one she's in. Cole and Cassie holding hands at the firing squad. The faces on everyone at the daughter's campsite as Hannah's rescue is told. Cole and Cassie's thumb porn scene. (laughs) (laughs) I love that so much. I told you, age of innocence. Hands can be super sensual. (laughs) Go ahead. Cassie turning down Cole's affections and leaving and crying. Steely face Cassie convincing Ramsey that she's on board to kill the witness. Okay, I can go on and on as this is one of the best hours of television. Sending this off to you because I will continue to change my mind and or revise practically every hour on the hour. So much to unpack in Lullaby. (laughs) (laughs) That was great. So Uh, many highlights. (laughs) All right, thumb porn. I just... Thumb porn. I can do things. Thumb porn. I mean, <laughs> the terminology itself makes me feel a little squicky, but, <laughs> but okay. Oh, it's great. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our next um, feedback is from Carmen. Um, so Carmen's is more um, paragraph form. So I'm just going to dive into it. Um, first, let me thank CC and Beep for hosting aw, an amazing and insightful rewatch podcast and for asking listeners to contribute thoughts on Lullaby. That's really nice. Thank you, Carmen. Stop it. <laughs> so nice. Okay. I can't remember how many times I've seen this brilliant episode. These last couple of times, I was consciously looking for themes and connections I hadn't noticed before, especially while considering the end of the story. Both times I assumed I wouldn't cry, but apparently turning my analytical mind on overdrive, overdrive didn't stem the tide. The Hannah reveal is just so breathtaking. Upon rewatch, as someone with an English degree, I immediately focused on Jones's recitation of Shakespeare's To Be or Not To Be soliloquy from Hamlet. I love the fact that her copy has handwritten annotations in it, and the way Jones 
own intro flows beautifully into the text. When I reread the entire soliloquy, I thought it was interesting how the line for who would bear the whips and scorns of time was left out. This is a bit of a reach, but maybe the line was intentionally excluded for a specific reason. Joan says later, although mockingly, time is on our side, which ends up being true. Time was actually aiding them through Jennifer. So time was neither whipping nor scorning them. I love the use of the line, no traveler returns, just as Cassie splinters away. If she succeeds, not only will Jones have been killed in the past, but since the machine would never have existed, there will be no quote-unquote traveler. Jones's next words, in thy, is it Orison's? Is that it? I'm not sure. Okay, I'm not sure if that's a, okay. In thy Orison's be all my sins remembered is from the text. And then she adds her own when she says, or erase. Here is Jones at her lowest point, bereft of hope, ready to die in the past, and have her misdeeds die with her. When Jones finds out that Jennifer was with them in 2020, she calls her causality's fool. Correlating this with Jones's Shakespearean recitation, Jennifer is indeed a fool of the type Shakespeare frequently used, a person who provides comic relief, but also speaks with wisdom and truth, not only to other characters, but also to the audience. She makes us laugh, but she also truly knows what's going on. She's the one who lets Cole and Cassie know that they are in a reboot and that time likes Jones the way, just the way she is. She tells Cole that he needs to do something, but, but by doing nothing. Without being specific, she gives him the idea to save Hannah while Jones is out of the loop, so to speak, thus preserving her timeline and her impetus for creating time travel. In some ways, she is the voice of the writer, in this case, Shantretta, explaining to us what is happening in the most entertaining way. She does this not only in Lullaby, but in many other episodes. She's the comic relief, but also the voice of wisdom, the voice of time. As she departs to her own timeline in the finale, she says, the actor does not say goodbye to her audience, only goodnight, and then wakes up and does it all again. This might not just refer to her stint on the stage in France, but also her lifetime as causality's fool. And Jennifer is so obviously valued by all of them in the end, especially by Cole as he tells her, you were the best of all of us. The central part of this ep- actually, why don't you, should we stop there? I mean, we can. She <laughs> <laughs> oh, hits you so hard as Jennifer feels. I love Jennifer. Um, Jennifer is the perfect tool for literally anything you need to do in an episode. You need comedy, great. You need exposition that doesn't bore the shit out of you and can actually provide a little bit of mystery. Boom, Jennifer. Like, she's just there for so many things that if you did not have her character in this show, it would be very, very difficult to pull off. Right, like Game of Thrones could have learned a lot from this. You don't need naked people in the background. (laughs) If you need exposition. (laughs) You just need somebody who's like really entertaining. Um... (laughs) I I love I I loved sort of kind of breaking down you know times on their side versus leaving that line for who would bear the whips and scorns of time. I mean it's interesting, right? Like because mm-hmm. time still does seem to exact a price for things, right? right. Like right. Um, and there's sort of a larger conversation, which is the whole. Um, motivation of the army of 12 monkeys of viewing time right as as whipping people the scorns of it right like that's what the passage of time the the viewpoint that the passage of time is what makes the human experience miserable Right. (laughs) right right um but i i really love sort of the um the causality's fool discussion and just talking about how 
you know, not only is the role that she serves as the voice of time to the characters and guiding them, but also the relationship that the audience has with her, because so many times she's speaking to us in Mm -hmm. kind of this not quite breaking the fourth wall kind of way, but yeah, I mean, like the same way that Shakespeare's Shakespeare uses the fool in so many of his plays. Um, and I love, I, I just, I love what Carmen kind of just digging into that. Um, so that was great. Um, so then did you have anything else about that or should we dive into the rest of what she wrote? No, go ahead. All right. Um, so Carmen goes on to say the central part of this episode that I wanted to touch on is Hannah herself. And the blanket we see throughout with her name on it. Seeing her name in writing, we are reminded that it is a palindrome. It begins at the end and ends at the beginning. The name Hannah actually means he, as in God, has favored me with a child. But here we can substitute time for God, just like Cole does in his story about the bullets. Time has given Jones her daughter back. If you believe that time wouldn't let Jones be killed or changed, but only allow the loop to end when Hannah was secretly saved. And that time, literally, as in the passage of time, gave Hannah back to her mother. Now, as Jones's resurrected daughter, she is a beacon of hope for the future. Jones is encouraged to fight on and not allow the army of the 12 monkeys to destroy time itself. And when Jones gives the blanket to Hannah near the end of the episode, she is passing along hope to another generation. Jones returns to Shakespeare at the end of the episode, rephrasing his words. The undiscovered country does not beckon me. With this, Jones proves that she has regained her sense of purpose. Something interesting as a footnote is that in the following episode, we learn Jennifer's name for Hannah is Zeit, the German word for time. On a whim, I wanted to find out how to say the word gift in German since Hannah was, was a gift. And her internet search told me that the word is Geschenk. Oh, gosh, Sarah's like cringing right now at my German pronunciation. (laughs) But I learned that there is a German word, gift, that means poison in English. We all know now that Hannah's survival is necessary for Cole's existence. And Cole's existence actually poisoned time, driving it insane. So Hannah is a gift, both the English and German meaning of the word from time, since she is part of the reason that time went insane. By definition, kindly provided by Jennifer, Insanity is, quote, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. A loop. Time had to first be broken before it could be repaired. It had to be poisoned in order to be cured. Hannah has to exist to give birth to time's savior, Cole, who had to be its first, who first had to be its destroyer. I'm reminded of another famous quote from Hamlet, not used in the series, but appropriate here. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And in this case, it is time, personified as an active participant in causality, which hadn't been conceived as being possible. Wow. I know. That's such a... <laughs> wow. That's such like a lame response. Wow. <laughs> I think you should be doing this podcast, Carmen. Um <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I love, and Sarah had mentioned that as well. Um, and they were so cute because they didn't want to steal each other's idea, but they both thought of it. Um, about yeah, the Han- palindrome. Yeah. Um, it's just right. Like just the, the name Hannah, the fact that, you know, backwards and forwards, it's the same. The fact that it means, you know, a, a gift from God or, or as Cole says, God time, however you want to view it. Um, but then also sort of the, the like added layer of, of a gift um, and but also, you know, poison and, and, and insanity, right? Like, oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's 
So. Yeah, and it's interesting too because as you were reading it, when they when you got to the definition of Hannah, before you explained, you know, that it was about Joan receiving Jones receiving Hannah back, the um, you know, God has favored me with a child. I was thinking about Cole mm-hmm. because Hannah's the one who's favored with a child. Right. So it's just interesting how it like keeps applying to the generations. Right. Right. Um, right. And Cole is sort of like right, like Cole is both the gift to Jones that allowed time travel to be possible while also driving time insane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So yeah, again, it's just circles within circles. Our next section is from Runa. Lullaby is probably an episode I'll never forget and is one of my top three favorite episodes of 12 Monkeys. I cry and see new things every time. At this rewatch, it occurred to me that a lullaby is used to soothe and put to sleep. At the end, Jones is soothed by being reunited with Hannah and her obsession to bring her back is put to sleep, allowing her to focus on real threats to the world slash time. I remember the first time I watched it. I thought Jones was going to extremes and deciding just to order her own murder. Of course, I didn't think Jones would die. I thought Cassie and Cole might talk her out of it somehow. I remember being impatient in the first few minutes, wondering when we would see Cassie versus Ramsey due to what happened with Sam. Then I saw Hannah and thought, whoa, what if they save her? But I had no idea. (laughs) I've watched Lullaby several times, but I think my recent watch was the first time post-finale. Oh my gosh, you guys. There were so many clues and teasers. Jones looks at Cole and says, the answer was in front of us the whole time. Yeah, Jonesy, it still is, and you're still not seeing it. (laughs) Jones asks what someone would say at the end before they cease to exist. The answer is initiate splinter sequence. Oh, man. (laughs) And a winky emoji because she knows what she just did. (laughs) You can't, no, you can't just like spring thoughts of Cole erasing himself on us like that. Little Hannah bears some resemblance to little James, especially if you look at her forehead. That's interesting. I, I never thought about that. Yeah. Uh, What struck me the most on this rewatch is the consistency of Cole's worldview and shades of Cassie's future heartache. Cole asked 2020 Jones if one moment of happiness is worth a lifetime of anything else. He later puts his hand over Cassie's wanting to discuss the possibility of more between them. He tells her the same, that moments of happiness are better than never having them at all. He also says the same thing to Ethan unknowingly in his scab days, Mm. to Cassie at Titan and in the final epilogue. Alternatively, Cassie's response to Cole and, Lull- Cole and Lullaby was, it's the losing that haunts us, which, who is it that struggles to shut down the machine again? <laughs> so the Cole Cassie of Lullaby foreshadowed the Cole Cassie in the finale and their separate struggles and views. I'm just so blown away by how much groundwork was laid very carefully and very early on. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's that's the thing, you know, the two biggest things. It's 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 the 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 sort of foreshadowing of what the ultimate conflict in worldviews between Cassie and Cole is going to be. It's obviously the all of the meaning now that we know who Cole is, um, and then also sort of like the the choose your own ending <laughs> of it all, mm-hmm. right? Which is what they're talking about at at the fireside. Hello, witnesses. This is Your Evil Twin, calling from the UK. I'm sure lots of people are going to be talking about the emotional impact of Lullaby, especially since we're watching it after one minute more as a real emotional rollercoaster. But I'm not going to talk about that. 
Instead, I'm going to be the cold, calculating, logical nerd who talks about plot holes and paradoxes and whether things make sense. In one minute more, we find out that Hannah is actually Cole's mother, and time needs Cole to be erased. So in Lullaby, why does time bother to do the Groundhog Day loop? Surely if Hannah died, or if Jones didn't invent time travel, then Cole would cease to exist, and that's what time needs to happen anyway. I've come up with three possible solutions to this. The first is what I call the Unstoppable Demon Theory. In Season 4, we learn that Cole is the demon that drives time mad, turning it into a snake that eats its own tail. Cole has got a special relationship to time, but unfortunately, it's an abusive relationship. Cole has gotten time twisted up into loops and spirals and knots. And he's a djinn. He's inadvertently responsible for his own birth. The timeline of Cole's life is too damn complicated, and it's intertwined with the fate of the human race, and whether time gets destroyed or not. So time simply can't cope with the idea of Cole being erased. It's like a sort of Stockholm Syndrome, where a hostage defends their kidnapper, or where an abused person doesn't know how to live without the person who abused them. Time doesn't know how to deal with a situation where Cole is never born. Instead, time says, nope, can't do that. Jones has got to develop time travel, and Hannah has got to give birth to Cole, so that Cole can exist. And Cole has got to exist, because he's predestined to go back to 2016 and meet Cassie. And they're predestined to have Ethan. And Cole is predestined to go back to the 40s and 50s and 60s, and the future, and medieval times. And so time thinks that Cole ceasing to exist would be disastrous, when actually... Letting him be erased would fix everything. The poem says that the demon is the only one who can use the weapon. Nobody can get rid of Cole except for Cole himself. And he can't just go back in time and kill himself, or kill his mother. He has to erase himself in a way that time can't undo with a Groundhog Day loop. He has to use the program the primaries came up with. It erases him from all points of history simultaneously. It unravels all the loops and knots in time. It undoes everything he ever did, so that Cole isn't important to time anymore, and time can be sane once again. Okay, first of all, like we love all kinds of nerds on this podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah, cold-hearted or flailing with feels, all nerds are welcomed on this podcast. So um, okay, so I, I love the names for these theories. Unstoppable Demon Theory. Love it. I do. I love it. Um, although I feel like I'm going to say that at the end of each one of these theories. Um, what are I mean, the one thing that jumped out at me, Beep, and thinking about this theory are two things, or, or three, actually. That, the, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm like, my brain is like firing. Okay, so the first is, it's interesting about the story saying that the demon can be the only one who wields the weapon. Mm-hmm. And that that goes toward why this particular solution that Jones proposes is going to work and the importance of unraveling time and erasing all of Cole's entries into time simultaneously, right? Right. Um, the other thing that I think is, is interesting is if time is so, for lack of a better way to put it, fucked up <laughs> because of what's happened. That goes hand in hand with the idea of time needing primaries 
to help it think. Mm-hmm. And that it's primaries who are the ones that come up with the weapon to erase coal, to fix time. Does that make sense? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're thinking for time and they're doing it across different centuries and time periods. It's almost like they're, like, in a weird way, like, reporting back, like, <laughs> all of them together. Like, well, this is what we see. And it's like uh, crowdsourcing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, you had like the primaries on the one hand trying to put together the weapon across centuries and in different places. And on the other hand, you had like the army of the 12 monkeys building Titan to destroy time in all different places all over the world in different centuries, right? right. Like these two different armies. Um, but I think that's, so I mean, that the the idea of a more sort of symbiotic relationship between time and the primaries fits with this like unstoppable demon theory, I think. Well, yeah. And the issue is if you simply remove Cole from the equation, like starting in 2020, he's already affected the timeline. So that's why, I mean, like he was saying, and I think like we've said before, just killing him doesn't work because Mm -hmm. he still leaves like lasting impressions and already has like from a linear perspective, he started messing things up, you know, in, in, at the point of his birth in 2009 and even before then when he did more traveling, but it's like right. killing him now doesn't. Fix yeah. It, well, it goes into the next one. <laughs> right. Next right. 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 Um, so we jump, but I, but I, yeah, I like this idea. This is, this is almost a, like a step back of time. Like time is sentient, right? But time also really needs the primaries to help it. And it, it, right, like, which is a little bit different than sort of the third theory, which we'll get to. So I think that's sort of like the, the benefit of this, of viewing it through this lens is that it helps make sense of like, or bolsters or gives a greater context to like what the primaries are doing throughout the story. All right. So let's hear the next theory. Now, my second theory is what I call the paradox prevention theory. And it states that the reason time does the Groundhog Day loop is because if Cassie prevented the creation of time travel and erased Cole from existence, it would cause a massive grandfather paradox. In theoretical physics, there's a thing called the Novikov self-consistency principle. A time traveller can't do anything that would make it impossible to have time travelled in the first place. In Lullaby, for Cassie to be there in 2020 to shoot Jones, time travel has to exist. And she needs to have met Cole and gotten caught up in everything that's going on. If Cassie gets rid of time travel, or prevents Hannah giving birth to Cole, then Cassie never meets Cole, and she never time travels, so she's unable to end up in 2020 and shoot Jones. And Jones survives and creates time travel. So it goes round and round in an unsolvable loop. There's no sensible way for time to continue forwards beyond that point. Causality is broken. That's known as a grandfather paradox, which is named after the idea of going back in time to kill your own grandfather. Cassie and Cole have to figure out a solution that is self-consistent. They need to do whatever is necessary to cause the timeline that they came from. One where Hannah is alive, but Jones thinks she is dead, so that they can get into the mess that they're in in the first place. Now you might be thinking, so what if Cassie causes a paradox? Cole and Cassie had injections that make them immune to changes to history, and immune to paradoxes. The word paradox gets mentioned in Twelve Monkeys a lot. There's even an episode called Paradox. So surely there can't be a rule against paradoxes. 
But when the characters talk about paradoxes, they're usually talking about something else. They're talking about a time-travelling object coming into contact with itself, or a primary being stabbed with his or her own bones. It causes some kind of feedback loop that leads to an explosion. That's the same sort of made-up science as in the movie Time Cop with Jean-Claude Van Damme, where they say the same matter can't occupy the same space, and when someone bumps into their past self, they both melt into goo. Now, that's not based on anything in real physics. As far as we know, it's perfectly safe to go back in time and shake your own hand. But in the world of Twelve Monkeys, sure, why not? There's some physics we don't know about, which means it's a bad idea to come to contact with yourself. Call it temporal feedback or something like that. The characters call it a paradox, perhaps because in normal circumstances it's impossible to meet yourself, unless you have a time machine. But it's not the same thing as a real proper paradox, a grandfather paradox. In the pilot episode, Leland Goines decides to have Cole shot, even though that version of Cole hasn't yet gone back to 1987, and he hasn't met Leland in the Tokyo nightclub. Leland says, you know what that's called? A paradox. To which Cole says, do you really want to see a paradox? And he causes an explosion of Cassie's watch. Now the watch thing isn't really a proper paradox, it's just temporal feedback. But if Leland had actually succeeded in killing Cole, he'd have made their meeting in 1987 impossible. And that would have been a proper grandfather paradox. In season 1, Joan sends Cole back to try to stop the plague, and they think that will make Cole disappear. They think it's like Back to the Future, where Marty McFly prevents his own conception and starts to fade away. But every attempt to stop the plague fails. They cause what they try to prevent. It's important to remember that Jones is just guessing how time travel works. It's a new science, and Cole is the first time traveller. In primary, Cole and Cassie burn the virus in 2016, but instead of stopping the plague, it causes a time shift, with the virus is released in 2018 instead. The new timeline is self-consistent. Time course-corrects to make sure that everything we saw in Season 1 could still happen in the new timeline, to avoid a paradox. That said, there might be some holes in my paradox prevention theory. Ethan is one of them. Ethan's entire existence is a sort of grandfather paradox, because he gets conceived in a timeline that Colin erases. But hey... When two time travellers have injections to make them immune to changes in history, and then they conceive a child, and then one of them uses mental time travel to take over his own past body, that's a pretty weird situation. Maybe that's something that's allowed to break the rules. Plus, it's a much smaller paradox than time travellers preventing themselves from time travelling. It's not like Ethan himself prevented his own conception, or something like that. Now, in Season 3, Ethan's guardians wear splinter suits, so that if anything goes wrong, they're able to go back in time and warn themselves. Now that's a grandfather paradox, because that means the guardians undo whatever problem caused them to go back in time in the first place. But again, there's some wiggle room for special rules. The splinter suits allow time travellers to come into contact with themselves without an explosion. They provide better temporal protection than Jones's injections. And, within a few seconds of speaking to their past selves, 
the Guardians always press the self-destruct button and immolate themselves. The Guardians say that they have to do it so that causality is preserved. In other words, they're worried about causing a grandfather paradox. Perhaps if they didn't self-destruct, then time would put them in a Groundhog Day loop. Now, when Cole uses a splinter suit and becomes future asshole, he goes back and helps himself. However, future asshole doesn't change anything. He doesn't cause any paradoxes. Perhaps if he did, he'd end up in a Groundhog Day loop. What's great about the paradox prevention theory is that, like the unstoppable demon theory, it ties into the thing where Cole is the demon who drives time mad. But in that theory, time was short-sighted and didn't realise that erasing Cole would be a good thing. In the paradox prevention theory, instead it's a matter of causality, what's possible and what's not. The characters can't fix time simply by going back and changing one thing, because it would cause a whole bunch of grandfather paradoxes. So the only way to get the happy ending, where there's no plague, is for Cole to completely erase himself using the primary program. That undoes any interactions that Cole had with anyone and anything. It untwists the knots in time, unloops every loop. It separates Cole from causality, so that eliminating him causes no paradoxes. Okay, so paradox prevention theory. Um, <laughs> I'm just taking it all in. Okay. So, first of all, I love, like, I didn't actually, maybe I knew once, like, a long time ago, but I, I didn't grandfather paradox the actual definition, meaning going back to kill your own grandfather. I had never actually known that that's where the name comes from. Um, from now on, we shall refer to all grandfather paradoxes as proper paradoxes. <laughs> Because I love, I love that sort of like separating that, that that there's a difference between that and sort of like the idea in this show about like the two watches coming into contact, right? Or like yeah. objects coming into contact. That's that's a great distinction. When uh, yeah, because you're talking the difference between a time paradox and Mother Nature doesn't like it when you rearrange her furniture. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I like that distinction. Um. So that all that all makes sense, right? Um, and it's sort of, I think in some ways, it like, for lack of a better word, demystifies. The other two theories are, are sort of more dependent on time as like a sentient force. Does that make sense? Right, yeah. Whereas this one is really just about like the theoretical science of time travel. I guess my question is, at the end, why is it okay then that Cole is spit out in 2016? Well, see, I think that while this, and I think this is what he was, you know, pointing out too about how there might be some holes in it. You're talking about theoretical physics versus the world of the show. Mm -hmm. And there would be so many grandfather paradoxes in the show if time were not some sort, if it didn't have some sort of sentience. Mm -hmm. Is that a word? I mean, I'm, go I'm going with it. I know okay, you're not. Great, yeah. yeah. If time is not sentient to some degree, then th this couldn't work. Because, I mean, even the things he pointed out, you know, the Guardians can't go back and be like, okay, you need to fix this problem. Because when they fix that problem and they never got to that point, the person would not have needed to go back to fix the problem to start with. Right. You can't solve a problem that keeps you from having the problem in the first place. Exactly. Right. 
Which is, it, it's kind of like the plague in and of itself. Correct. Yeah. Right? And so the Which issue is... is uh, yeah. I, and I love that it helps you make, like, it's one of those things that's like, it just makes it really concrete. Like, for example, so that's the answer why in, in early season two, when they burn the virus, it course corrects so that, you know, they changed something, but you still preserved everything that happened in season one. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. In season two. Right. And the only way to unloop all the necessity of course correction is for everybody to live through it and then Cole to be erased from every moment he was ever in. So that it literally nothing in the series ever occurred to start with. Right. But now, isn't there going to be new things that occur because Cole is still there? Yeah, but time is sentient. (laughs) (laughs) But... Uh, okay. <laughs> I thought we were leaving. I thought we were. I thought we were sticking to the theoretical science. Like, I guess that's you know, if sci-fi realizes they made a mistake and they need to bring back twelve monkeys, <laughs> that's the next part. That's the next part of the story. Um, you, you like get the gang back together in Deacon's bar. Like, Fuck, guys, we got to fix this again. <laughs> like, yeah. So- well, it's also the point he makes. I mean, there's you know um, about all the injections and, you know, the splinter suits and, and Ethan. I mean, there's certain things that just exist outside of time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's why at the end you have Cassie remembering. I mean, and Jennifer obviously knows. um, Well, they had the injections though. That's my point. Yeah. 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 So that is like 100% outside of the idea of a grandfather paradox. Right. But it's a, it's within the world of the show, a scientific explanation for why, for example, Cassie remembers. But if you don't buy that time is a sentient force, then I don't know how you can accept the ending that Cole is there and the world is going to be okay. Right, absolutely. It cannot be solely based on scientific principles as they theoretically exist in the world. Right. Otherwise, this this paradox is happening all over the place. This is like going back to Alicia's point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it gives you choices. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I love, I love sort of, th- like, that's great. The distinction between grandfather paradox in terms of theoretical science and what this show, the mythology of this show about objects or people coming into contact with er- with different ver- temporal versions of themselves. Um, and oh, that- I love the term uh, that he coined, the temporal feedback. It's yeah. perfect. It's so cool. It is you, so You've great. disrupted the idea of time, like, by putting these objects where they don't go, which is right. cool. Right, right. And I love the idea of that, like, the suits have, right, like, machinery in them that help adjust the temporal feedback. That's yeah, great. so you're, like, immune. <laughs> <laughs> you have immunity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, yeah. So I think, but yeah, I think if you... If, if the answer is the paradox prevention theory, then I think either you're in the red forest at the end because Cole can't actually be there or you're about to start a new loop, which is going to fuck up time all over again. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that, I mean, it's just like he said, and he, and he explained it very yeah. eloquently, but I think if you rely strictly on this principle, then, then you end up with a lot of plot holes that I don't think were intended to be there and that I don't personally believe are there. Right. Yeah. Um, and also, it always sounds better when it's with an English accent. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Thank you very much, your evil twin. You made my day. <laughs> I know. Our podcast has never sounded more eloquent. All right, let's go to his last theory. 
My third and final theory is the time-knows-what's-best theory. It's a little bit more in keeping with what Jennifer and Cole think is going on in Lullaby. In this theory, time does the Groundhog Day loop to make sure Cassie and Cole do the right thing, because time sees the big picture. Time knows how it's all going to end. Things might seem bad because there's a plague and messengers are killing primaries, but time knows that Cole is going to stop the messengers, and that eventually, in season 4, Cassie is going to defeat Olivia at Titan, and she's going to shove her into the beam of splinter energy and send her back to the Himalayas a thousand years ago. Cole and Cassie's victory is already predetermined by the existence of Olivia's corpse and the virus. The origin of the virus is proof that the Twelve Monkeys are doomed to fail, and the heroes are destined to win. If Cassie killed Jones in 2020, perhaps there wouldn't be any problems with paradoxes. Perhaps it would erase Cole and get rid of the plague and the Twelve Monkeys and so on. But time knows that there will be a better, happier ending, as long as they keep on fighting. Of course, for this theory to be true, that must mean that in the finale, Cassie does stop the countdown. If time can see the big picture, and there's a possible future in which Cassie might allow the Red Forest to happen, well, it wouldn't make sense for time to risk its own destruction. It would be safer for time to allow Cassie to raise coal and lullaby, as that would immediately undo everything and prevent any danger of the Red Forest ever happening. So for time to bother with the Groundhog Day loop, time must know that both Cassie and Cole will do the right thing that Cassie will stop the countdown, and Cole will sacrifice himself. So, there you have it. Three possible explanations why time did a Groundhog Day loop, rather than allowing Cassie to erase time travel and erase Cole. In the first theory, time has been driven mad, and is too confused to realise that erasing Cole is the solution. In the second theory, the heroes have misunderstood how time travel works, and they're trying to do something that's physically impossible. And in the third theory, the heroes are predestined to have a happy ending, so time was just making sure that they don't give up and miss out on that. That's three ways for everything to make sense. As for which theory is correct, well, I would say that the right theory is the one that you choose. Here are my thoughts. Mm-hmm. This one is right. <laughs> and here is why. Okay. Because Cassie stopped the damn <laughs> countdown. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Like, you know, what's interesting is I don't, okay, let's, let's, let's take this theory and then uh, let's take sort of a, um, 35,000 foot view of like all of these theories. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the first is, I swear it has never occurred to me that Olivia's corpse in season one and the fact that there is that origin of the virus is proof that victory is pre preordained or has already happened for like to put it another way. Like, I right, never- because we didn't know that it was her. Right. So, but I've never, but even now, like, I've never, we spent probably like 30 minutes, right? Trying to think about like all of that, right? Remember? Like, <laughs> yeah. with Jen. So, but I, that is so, I, I was just totally floored by that. Like, it's evidence. It, it's so, like, uh, what's the right word? Like, amazing 
that what we think of as the ultimate symbol of the demise of humanity, right? And, and the army of the 12 monkeys, which is this corpse that contains the virus that kills 7 billion people, that that corpse is actually proof that the good guys are going to win. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I'm just going to like keep saying that over and over again because I'm so surprised by it. No, yeah, <laughs> so I, never, that- I never thought of it either. And it's such... It is not a simple thought, but it is a simplistic explanation. I think he did incredible with that. And I was just kind of sitting there with my mouth hanging open a bit. Yeah, it's like a really elegant way to, I mean, in some ways, it's like time, either time knows what's best or time already knows what's happened. Yes. And I always subscribe to to that, the second part. And so in that case, in that case, time, I'm trying to think of terms of because in the first theory, we were thinking about the relationship between time and primaries. So in this, in this theory, it's not that time is so crazy, it doesn't know what's going to happen, but that and that it needs the primaries to think for it so much as the primaries are just time's army to help our heroes along their way. If that makes sense. Right, right. I don't, in some ways, I don't... Do you think that all of these theories are necessarily mutually exclusive? No. Right? Like No. I think it's a bit of a combination when you look at the, the overall mythology of the show. Right. Like, you can have this grandfather paradox problem, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea that time is being driven mad, but also the idea that time knows that despite it being driven mad, it's all going to be okay because we have the existence of the virus in Olivia's corpse in 2016. Right. Or even in 1987. Um, okay. Yeah, because it was already chilling in like 800. Well, like literally chilling. <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. It's um, the only time Olivia has ever been chill. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and so that, I mean, that's the other thing. Like when Bubs was on the podcast and she was talking about like, you know, that the, 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 the scientific rules, whether it's like actual science or schmience, because we don't know, right? And it's like theoretical, the, that they are not necessarily mutually exclusive of the idea of time being a sentient force. Sure, sure. The, and the same I, way that you can like believe in science and believe in evolution and also believe in God, right? Like, so, yeah. Um, I we- love schmience so <laughs> long as you keep it consistent. Yeah, you make up your rules. You can make up whatever the rules are. Just like stick to them or or explain a reason why it's acceptable to break them. But don't just break them all willy nilly because kind of back to what, you know, was said earlier look how clever I am. Like mm-hmm. that, uh-uh, no. Which brings us to your evil twin's parting thought. I'll leave you with one last thought. It's about how our knowledge of Lullaby in One Minute More affects a rewatch of season one. In episodes five and six, The Night Room and The Red Forest, Cole ends up in an alternate future where Ramsay has an eye patch. It turns out that Cassie died in 2015, The virus was released early due to Operation Troy, and Cassie never recorded a message for the future, and Cole died while being interrogated in a cell. If Cassie's dead, then the events of Lullaby can never happen. She can never go to 2020 and save Hannah with antibiotics. That means Hannah dies. So Cole should be erased from existence, 
rather than dying during interrogation in a cell. And whether Cole is dead or erased, either of those mean that Cole never meets Leland Goines in a Tokyo nightclub in 1987. So Leland doesn't buy the corpse. That means Markridge never gets the virus, and Operation Troy never happens. Also, with Cassie and Cole dead, there can be no Ethan, so there's no word of the witness for the Twelve Monkeys to follow. And, with Cassie dead, Olivia never gets pushed into the beam at Titan. Which means that the Origin corpse shouldn't exist, and the virus shouldn't exist. Despite all that, there's no Groundhog Day loop. We can theorise that there doesn't need to be, because Cole still has access to Jones and the time machine. He still has an opportunity to go back and fix things. Time doesn't do a Groundhog Day loop unless there's no other way to fix stuff. But the big unanswered question is how could the timeline with Eyepatch Ramsey ever exist at all? It seems impossible. Why doesn't Kathy's death erase Cole, raise the virus, and erase the Twelve Monkeys? Cassie's death should lead to a future where the plague never happened, rather than it happening sooner. Well, don't worry, I do have some theories to explain that, which also handily solve some other weird things throughout the series. But those will just have to wait until some other time. What kind of cliffhanger is that? <laughs> <laughs> it was a great cliffhanger, man. That's messed up. I was like, there's more, right? And then he's like, another time. And I'm like, ah, you sly dog. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to think about that in terms of sort of the other theory. Like, first of all, there is another way to fix it, right? So Cole still has access to the machine. And if you think time knows what's best, time knows that it's going to be fixed, right? So it can allow Cole to use the machine and it doesn't have to use the Groundhog Day mechanism. I mean, that could have something to do. And I know we've talked about this before, and this was with Bubs as well. Maybe this is where the idea of the machine misfiring in 207-208 actually is part of the loop as well. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So time is sentient, but there's also a misfire, and that wasn't happening in season one. So it was like still part of a loop that he was in to get to, you know, the next portion of bringing Cassie back. Because bringing Ca- or Cassie dying like doesn't fix any of this either. Because Cole, you know, already. Ugh, this always gets so confusing to me when you look at time from a thirty-five thousand feet view. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that's like the um, standard. From which you look at things. Because <laughs> <laughs> planes fly at it? But what yeah. if you go to 36,000 or if you're only at 10? I don't know. Like, you can't see stuff, I guess. The earth is flat. Anyway. <laughs> and, time, and, time, and time's a flat circle. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Go. Yeah. So when you when you look at it, and I've talked about this before, if, if everything from the end to the beginning is kind of not necessarily predetermined, but if time can see all of that, mm-hmm. then Cole has already jacked things up right and there's also versions of the of the loop where they didn't win right like there's versions that old jennifer lived where they she didn't choose to go to titan right Right. she says that in resurrection there's versions of the of the loop where old jennifer doesn't go find deacon and give him his knife so how do those exist right yeah i don't Uh, know Trust. 
<laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I guess the, the question is, how does the Ramsey eye patch timeline exist if Cassie's dead? I don't know, but I would have been delighted to see more of Eyepatch Ramsey. <laughs> he was a very, very interesting uh, AU of, uh, yeah. of the Ramsey character. Right, right. Although we're not allowed, there are no alternative, uni- there are no parallel or alternative universes in this time travel show. But yeah, AU Ramsey. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, well, maybe, uh, hopefully Evil Twin will come back and, and give us those answers he teased. And we'd love to hear from listeners um, if they have thoughts about how to reconcile that, that, that reality with Cassie being dead. Um, and now that we know that how important she is in Lullaby and et cetera and on and on with Cole and, and all of that. All right. Yeah, I- and just feedback on, on any of his theories. There's so much to unpack there. I, I'd like to kind of hear what anybody thinks about it yeah i'm sure we did not do it justice or at least i don't feel like i did no i know um but we all have different talents and we're all different kinds of nerds so we all bring different kinds of nerd nerdery (laughs) to this podcast thank you guys all so much for the feedback this was incredible to read um it's interesting to see the thoughts that we had during our own recording I know that we we didn't read or listen to any of these before we recorded ourselves because we didn't want to steal ideas. However, obviously things overlap and it's cool to see the people that saw the same things as we did, as well as those who either elaborated on them or, you know, brought a different angle. So this was really cool to uh, experience. But we have to declare a winner and we're going to cheat a little bit because we have two. <laughs> <laughs> So, but time let us do that. It's fine. (laughs) So the winner is a tie between your evil twin and Carmen. Yes. All right. So um, your evil twin, his awesome, like brain breaking time travel theorizing, trying to like put it all together. It was awesome. Um, Thank you so much. So fun. Um, Even though my brain hurts a little bit. Um, And Carmen's like Hamlet, Shakespeare, causality fool, the meaning of the name Hannah, um, and, and the essay that she wrote us, like they were both so awesome and we have two props. So whatever, like the right winners are the ones we choose and we pick both of you guys. Um, and thank you guys to everyone else. Um, just so you know what you're getting, you're each winning one of James Cole's factory time punch cards from 1957. If you remember Cole every time over and over again, punching into the factory um, and they were donated by Mr. Metallus. Um, I can't think of a more perfect um, memento from a time travel show than a time punch card <laughs> <laughs> and marking time. Um, so your evil twin and Carmen reach out to us um, on Twitter by D- DM or you can gmail us at word of the witnesses at gmail.com and let us know how we can get your prizes to you so next up we have our hyena rewatch pod with the hilarious meg says things from twitter um so we will have our own all-girl chaos squad um celebrating jennifer's original gangster all-girl chaos <laughs> squad um and if you another have- ouroboros <laughs> i'm just chaotic crazy women yelling about things yep. <laughs> um all right so if you don't have we anything- will have 100 less grenades <laughs> <laughs> except for feels grenades i cannot cannot speak to that oh uh, see you can't even speak to that um all right if you don't have anything else we'll see you soon <laughs>